like Brother Herb just said, we are going to uh, spend quite a, quite a bit of our time this morning together focused on the Lord's Supper and focused on really the foundation of who we are and what we believe as people of God. When you read through 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins with a lengthy, I guess not too lengthy, but uh, or rather perhaps the other way I should say it is a succinct description of uh, what the gospel is. And it, that leads to a lengthy conversation about the resurrection. But he begins by narrowing down and bullet pointing what it is that saves us and what it is that is the foundation of who we are and what we believe and and our hope in the resurrection itself and that all focuses on Jesus it focuses on his death and his burial and his resurrection and his subsequent glorification and if we're going to start a new year which we're doing and I think there's wonderful things ahead of us and I think that we uh, have reason for hope and for optimism as the year uh, as we begin a new year I think one of the most valuable things you can do at the beginning is take some time to remember who you are and why you're here and what matters most. What does matter more to you than anything else in the world? That's what we're here about. There are so many things in this world that can compete for our attention, compete for our loyalty, compete for our allegiance. But the thing that matters to us as people of God, as people who have been baptized in Christ, who have been buried with him, who have been raised up to live a new life with Christ, is who Jesus is and what he has done for us and what that means about the way we live for the world around us. There's a passage in Philippians chapter 3 that I want to read as we begin to think about the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Uh, the surpassing value of his life and of his death and of the body that was given for each one of us. Paul actually compares that story to the story of his life up to this point. And he looks at all the great things that he's done. And he looks at all of the reasons if he were more of a, of a foolish man and he were wanting to boast in his flesh or he were wanting to have confidence in his flesh, he actually has a pretty impressive resume. Um, you know, you can, you can stack his resume up against uh, any of his peers and you'll see that he's excelling and he is uh, outpacing each of them. But then in view of what Christ is and who Christ uh, is, he does a comparison to what his life is about and to what Jesus did and what it actually means, the gift of the body of Christ and the gift of the love of Christ and the gift of the salvation of Christ. And he comes to realize that everything that I've done up to this point it's nothing. It's nothing in comparison to what I have in Jesus. And if there's a reminder that can help us get our priorities uh, aligned properly as the year begins, I think it's that. I think it's, there's going to be a million things throughout this year that is going to, to pull us in one way or, or uh, that we can try to take pride in or that we can try to, to bolster ourselves in or, or we can commit our time and our focus and our energy and our anxiety to. But none of those things ultimately will be able to come with us beyond this life. None of those things ultimately are going to be central to the gospel and to what we're about, but Christ is. So this morning, as we remember Christ, let's remember that. We're going to do two things here in just a moment. I'm going to read Paul's passage from Philippians chapter 3, and then we're going to sing the first two verses of the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And I think when you survey, when you take time to slow down 
and to reflect upon and to meditate upon and to, uh, to investigate the cross and all that it means. I hope that we can walk out of that uh, reflective journey with the mindset that Paul discusses here in Philippians chapter 3. So I want to read this. This is a comparison between everything he's accomplished in his life and knowing Christ. What do you think matters more? He says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, uh, whatever things mattered so much, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them to be rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Notice how he is a, how easily he's able to dismiss his life's work and say when it really comes to comparing it to Christ, there is no comparison. I consider it loss. I actually have lost it. This is a letter that Paul writes from prison. It's one of his prison epistles. And he doesn't say, man, back in my former way of life, I had respect and I had uh, admiration and, and people looked up to me. And now here I sit in a miserable prison cell and, and life is not the way that I want it to be. And things are so much worse now that I have Christ. That, that's, a very, that's a very realistic way to think. I mean, if you're looking at how he's actually feeling, what he's actually going through. But that's not, apparently what is winning the day inside his mind. The mindset that is ultimately winning out is the one that says, even in this prison cell, having lost everything, I've gained the world. I've gained Christ. I've gained more than you could possibly imagine. I've gained everything. Why? Because Christ matters more. We're about to take the Lord's Supper this morning. And as we do so, let's lay aside all the things that can distract all the things that deal with our pride. Let's lay aside boasting. We, we actually had an excellent class this morning downstairs talking about one of the problems with the Lord's Supper of the church at Corinth. And one of those had to do with status. You know, the people up here had this status and the people down here had this status. The people up here had the wealth. The people down here had nothing. And that manifests itself in the way they took the Lord's Supper. Who ate first? Who got most? Who was left with nothing? I think when we come to realize the mindset and the attitude that Paul is describing here, we begin to lay our status at the door and we all enter humbly before the greatness of Christ to rejoice, to give thanks, and to participate in his body that was given for us. Um, so let's uh, sing the first few verses of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and then uh, we'll say a prayer before uh, taking of the Lord's Supper. Let's have a prayer uh, as we take the bread. Our dear and our holy Father, God, we love you and we give thanks to you this morning. We want to thank you for the gift of your son. We want to thank you for the surpassing value of knowing him, of our life together with him. And we want to thank you for his body that was given for us, that we may have hope, that we may have life that we may have fellowship with one another and ultimately have fellowship with you. Thank you, God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here in just a moment, we're going to sing the third verse of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And in that verse, the reflection uh, focuses on the blood of the cross and the blood that was shed uh, during that time. And I want to read a passage before we do that. It's from Hebrews chapter 9. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, that's where this passage is going to come from. 
And again, there's a comparison that's taking place uh, in this passage. Uh, Earlier, we saw Paul comparing the surpassing value of knowing Christ and who Christ is and what that means for him compared to his life at that point. Here, we're going to see the author of uh, the book of Hebrews comparing the blood of Jesus to the blood that people once put their hope in uh, for cleansing, for ritual purity, and even for forgiveness. Uh, When you read through, say, the early chapters of the book of Leviticus, you'll read about all of these different types of sacrifices that people could offer for different purposes. And and these sacrifices were the types of things that were made day after day, week after week, year after year. The sacrifices were made uh, for the priest so that he could be pure, and then so that he could purify the people. And it seems that every time one of these sacrifices is made, the countdown just begins until the next sacrifice needs to be made. Because these sacrifices, while they were commanded by God and while they were an important part of, of, of uh, the sacrificial system and the Levitical system and the tabernacle and the temple, and they were an important part of, of uh, one's walk with God, they were also a reminder of human sin. They were a reminder of our frailty before God, and they were a reminder of the fact that no matter what I do, it seems that sin remains a problem ever before me, because I'm going to need to do this again. In the book of Hebrews, uh, masterfully, using the very texts themselves that uh, will teach about the, uh, the priesthood and the temple and the tabernacle and, uh, and the sacrificial system, will demonstrate how God has something better in store and how through Christ that came to fruition. And he's going to speak about a sacrifice made by Christ that no longer carries with it that idea of this is for today and then I'll need another one tomorrow, but rather it's a sacrifice that is one time for all time. And some of the ways that he demonstrates that is by showing that the tabernacle that you once put your hope in has been replaced by a tabernacle that stands forevermore in the tabernacle in the heavens. The high priest who once he would live for a little while and then he died, then he needed to be replaced until he died, then he needed to be replaced until he died. And he himself had his own sins that he needed to offer his own sacrifices for before he could ever offer sacrifice to you. That's not your high priest anymore. You have a high priest who forever lives, having abolished and triumphed over death, so that he forever becomes your intercessor between you and God, and he is at the right hand of God. You have a perfect forever high priest who you can always put your hope and trust and confidence in, and that's Christ. He's also going to compare the blood of an animal that existed for a short while and then died, who had no inherent holiness to him at all, to the blood of Jesus himself. The blood of... God incarnate, the sinless, pure, holy blood that was offered through the Holy Spirit. I think it's so important as Christians to read Scripture, to engage in everything that we do uh, with the foundational belief in God, in a Trinitarian God, in all that we do. And uh, the Hebrew author is actually going to, in this passage, while looking at the blood of Jesus, demonstrate how the triune God was completely wholly invested and involved in all parts of the death of Jesus and the blood that was shed as Jesus offers himself to the Father through the Holy Spirit. And so let's read this and remember the surpassing value of the blood of Christ that flowed from his heads, his hands, his feet uh, as we begin uh, to take the, the, the Lord's Supper and uh, the, remember the blood. So Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats 
and the bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more so will the blood of Christ, who, offer, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's like, if you put your hope in an animal, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God, and then what the Hebrew author is going to do is he's going to look back to the book of Exodus. Uh, we talked about this passage last week during the Lord's Supper. When the covenant was ratified between Israel and God there at the base of Mount Sinai, it was ratified with blood. And there was an animal that, uh, that his throat was slit, slit and the blood was collected and then it was thrown around on all kinds of stuff. And that was the, the foundational agreement, the blood agreement of their covenant between God and man that they would be his people and he would be their God. But remember, that's just the blood of an animal. After having established the superiority of the blood of Jesus, the Hebrew author is then going to remind us of that blood uh, in uh, chapter 9 and verse 19. He says, For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses, and all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, and this is a quote from Exodus 24, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. All right, so there's the blood of the covenant. What he's describing for us is that we have an even better covenant that has been inaugurated through even better blood. And it's a covenant that uh, is described at the end of chapter 8 of Hebrews as one that says, All shall know the Lord. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Through the blood of this greater covenant, we have hope for, before God of cleansing, of forgiveness, of a high priest who forevermore stands to cleanse us of our sins. And that is, again, something worth thanking and praising God for. Let's now say a prayer for the fruit of the vine. Our dear and holy Father, we again come to give thanks to you to give thanks for the pure and perfect Son of God who gave himself for us, who shed his blood, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to you, that we may have hope, that we may have cleansing, may have purity, may have forgiveness. And God, we uh, are gathered here today out of thanksgiving and gratitude for that forgiveness as a people made clean by you, who together with one voice offer you our appreciation, who offer you our thanksgiving, who offer you our lives, God. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, uh, turn your Bibles to Psalm 73. We're going to read the last few verses of, the, of this song. And again, we're, we're about to sing the final verse of the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Um, and hopefully we are aware that the, um, the Lord's Supper is, um, is not... Um, you know, exactly the same thing as the, uh, the giving and the contribution. Uh, we are about to, uh, to talk a little bit about the giving, but I, it has become a tradition uh, within uh, churches of Christ where often one follows the other. Like in every church I've ever been to, the Lord's Supper is followed immediately by the giving, and often in the same format where you'll, you know, you'll say something about the bread, then a prayer, and then you do that. And then you say something about the fruit of the vine, and then prayer, and then you do that. Then you say something about the giving and a prayer, and you do that. And I do think there's some value in 
looking at these two aspects of our lives before God and of our worship together. And on the one hand, we are looking at the the immeasurably beautiful and precious gift that God gave to us of his son and the hope and salvation we have for that before we take a look at ourselves and we begin to ask, well, what can we give to him? And I I can promise you there's nothing you can put in the plate that will ever measure up to how much God has given you. But it is, if you're going to think about a spirit of generosity and if you're going to think about giving to God, perhaps it's important to do so after some time of reflection upon what he has given us. The final verse of uh, when I survey the wondrous cross uh, says uh, that basically if the whole realm of nature were mine, that would be a present far too small. Now, on the one hand, looking at that without the other words, you could think, wow, how much is it going to take for you to be satisfied? Uh, You know, if everything was given to you, that's not enough. What do you need? And I think the point is I don't need that. Everything that this earth holds is not enough because the one thing I actually do need, the one thing I can actually take with me is the salvation, is the hope, is the, the, the life that I have because of Christ. And so I don't need heaven and earth itself to be given to me. I don't need to be ruler of, of, uh, of armies or have a huge palace or a huge throne or have all heaven and earth and all of that. What I need is Jesus. That's the one present. That's the gift that, that satisfies my longings and what I am made for as a human. There's a psalm, uh, Psalm 73, where even at the beginning of it, uh, you find out that you're reading the story of someone who's having a crisis of faith. Because one thing he's doing is he's looking at the world around him and he's seeing that there are sinful people who have way more than him. They eat until they're satisfied every day and they have uh, more wealth than he could ever dream of having. And he's asking the question, isn't God supposed to be good to people who serve him? Why is it that I look around the world and people who serve God often suffer and those who, uh, who are, you know, ignore God, they're often wealthy and, and, and uh, they often have every ease they could ever have in life. And he says his foot came close, close to stumbling. He almost turned away from God. Because it was really frustrating him to think that God blessed the wicked and didn't care for his people. And I would say um, that can be frustrating. That also is probably a limited view because you can certainly find people who are right before God who are blessed. And you can certainly find wicked people who suffer. But we can get into a fog where we don't see all of that. The only thing that's, that's, uh, that's making its way through is this difficult dilemma of is it even worth it to serve God if it doesn't mean anything for me? And he says that's what was clouding his mind. That's what was turning his heart against God until he went to the sanctuary of the Lord, until he spent some time with God's people, and he had a breakthrough in his thinking. Uh, It revolutionized the way that he viewed the world. It revolutionized the way he viewed possessions, and it revolutionized the way he viewed God himself. And he came to realize that the way that you... uh, account for how good your life is, is not by uh, the accumulation of possessions. It's not by having everything in heaven and on earth. Uh, It's by having God. And if you have God, then you have more than enough. You have everything you need. Even if the whole realm of nature is yours, that's not what you're after. You're after a walk with God that gives you hope, eternal love, and salvation. Uh, So in, in Psalm 73, as he draws it to a close, these are the words that he uses to, to uh, redirect his thinking. 
in a way that, uh, that I think is more positive. In verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Perhaps that's a good way to, to think as we consider our giving. Uh, what do we desire more? Having that number in the bank account a little bit higher? Or maybe being able to, for God's kingdom, put it to use to the service of others. Put it to use to bring about the glory of the name of God in foreign lands or in the community around us or uh, in various ways. What can I use this for? Do I want to use it for me or do I want to use it for God? He says in verse uh, 26, For my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look down at verse 28. I love the final verse of this psalm. He closes it with um, what I think is, uh, again, if you're going to start off the year with some important reminders, this is a good one. He says, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of his works. What is your ultimate good in life? What is good to you more so than anything else? Is it your possessions? Is it the accumulation of wealth? Is it uh, how big your house is or how nice your car is or how much you have in your bank? Or can you say along with the psalmist that the nearness of God is my good and besides you, O Lord, I desire nothing else on this earth? Uh, As we give to the Lord, let's uh, remember those thoughts. As we say a prayer about the contribution, uh, just know that you do have the opportunity of services or uh, conclude. You can uh, place a a check or or a donation um, uh, to the church in the the foyer in the back, Um, or you can do so online. Uh, You'll have that option as well, but let's say a prayer. Dear God, we thank you for the good that you have done for us, and we pray that we can develop a mindset that says we desire nothing on this earth but you. And Father, we hope that we can develop a mindset that says your nearness to us is our ultimate good. And as we reflect upon the giving of your son, of his body which was given for us, of his blood which was given for us, of his life that was given that we may live, we pray that we're able to uh, demonstrate our love for you by giving back uh, some of what you have richly blessed us with. Uh, We thank you for your overwhelming generosity, and we pray that we can embody that ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews uh, chapter 2. We've uh, just taken the Lord's Supper. Um, We have... uh, given uh, or discussed giving uh, some of our goods back to God. I think it's important to remember that the story of Jesus and the story of his life uh, where he dies for us, his body is given for us, his blood is shed for us, is not actually the end of that biblical story. There is a resurrection and there is an exaltation. Um, In Hebrews chapter 2, there is a lengthy conversation about Jesus and his relationship to angels. And the whole first chapter is demonstrating how much greater and better Jesus is than angels. uh, Because Jesus is called God's son. And Jesus is God's son in a unique way that, that is not true of angels. They are his ministers and servants. But Jesus is given that special role as a God's son, as, as God's chosen king. And through the resurrection, we get to see that king enthroned. But when you get to chapter 2... He then changes focus a little bit. Instead of uh, explaining the exaltation of Jesus over even angels, he talks about a period where Jesus was made a little 
lower than the angels. He is quoting uh, from Psalm 8, and in this quotation, he's going to discuss Jesus uh, being cared and loved for by God and becoming even lower than angels who are created beings. In uh, Hebrews 2 and verse 6, it says, uh, But one is testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Then notice verse 7. You have made him a little lower than the angels. That is the picture of going down and being made low. But then that next phrase, you have crowned him with glory and honor. That is someone being elevated. Something happened in the middle of those uh, two events, being made lower than the angels, being crowned with glory and honor. And it says, and you have put all things in subjection under his feet. So he's crowned with glory and with honor, and he is ruling over all things. Well, what happened in the middle there, in between being made low and being crowned and, and exalted? Well, in verse 9, I think we get our answer. He says, but we do see Jesus, or we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And then notice the phrase, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So in the next verse, he's going to repeat that phrase, made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. But right in the middle, he's going to give us a little interpretation. He's going to say that's Jesus because of the suffering of death. So that, in verse 9, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. As you keep reading, you're going to find out that Jesus became flesh like us so that he might taste death for each and every one of us by God's grace, that he might consider us to be his own brothers. Um, he says, it's a fascinating phrase in verse 11. He says, for this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, talking about fellow Christians. Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers. It is tragic how often, perhaps, as we go throughout our day, as we're in our workplaces, we're among uh, people who are not Christians or not believers, we might suffer with being ashamed to call him our brother, even though he is the one who is ultimately all-powerful, all-true, all-pure, all-good. He is the, the locus and the center of life and our hope and our eternity. We can sometimes be a little bit ashamed of him. And yet he, looking at us in our frailty and weakness and sinfulness, is not at all ashamed to call us brothers. He was made like us so that he might taste death, so that he might become brothers like us. But then also, if you look at verse 14, it says, Therefore, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. He became flesh and blood. So that through death he might, and notice this, render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil. And he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He says through becoming flesh and dying, Jesus was able to do something that you can't see with your eyes, but it changed the whole nature of being in this universe. He was able to render powerless the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. The one who holds death over every one of our heads. The one who makes us live like slaves to death, knowing that death is our ultimate future and destiny and ruler. Jesus was able to render him powerless and free us from that slavery of death, that we may have hope and that we may have life and that we may, just as Jesus was made a little while lower than the angels, then was crowned with glory and honor that we also may in chapter 2 and verse 10 
he may bring many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. He can bring us to that glory and honor also. The story doesn't end with his head bowing low and dying on the cross. The story continues on to his exaltation and his invitation that we can be exalted to glory along with him. He is the trailblazer who set the path for us. That faithfulness to God sometimes means going through those difficult moments of suffering, but through Jesus, we have the leader. We have the author of our faith. We have the one who blazed the trail for us and made the path to glory uh, something we can each travel as well. Jesus did die. Jesus did shed his blood. We find hope, we find meaning, we find salvation in that. But Jesus also was raised. Jesus also was exalted. Jesus also sat at the right hand of God, and he's inviting us to come up with him. If you would turn to Philippians chapter 2. That's where our lesson is going to come from uh, this morning. It'll be a short lesson. But Philippians chapter 2, we've just uh, spent this morning talking about a story. um, A story of God who became a man who became a servant, who became someone who suffered uh, a painful and agonizing death on the cross. His body was given for others. His blood was shed for others. But then that same one was exalted by God. He was raised. He was exalted on high. Um, That story is the foundation story of who we are and of what we believe. And it's the foundational story of why we're here today. It's the foundational story of why throughout the world people are gathering in honor of Jesus 2,000 years later. It's because that story matters and it fundamentally changed this world that we live in. Well, that story uh, was written down in the Gospels and we have it as part of our Bible. But even before the Gospels were written, that story was being told by early Christians and early followers who had learned and heard the story, some of whom uh, had known and met Jesus, some of those uh, were influenced by his earliest followers. And one of the best ways to remember something is to do what we've been doing this morning. You sing it, or you write it in some sort of memorable, poetic way. In Philippians chapter 2, there is a, a brief statement about Jesus, and it summarizes that whole story. And the style in which it's written leads a lot of people to think, who, who know Greek better than I do, uh, that this is actually like a poem or a song, perhaps, that early Christians would know and would, uh, would use to remember and to tell other people about Jesus. It was a way of encapsulating the beauty of the story of Christ in such a way that it could be remembered and, and spoken about by others. And Paul is going to use it right here, right in the center of the book of Philippians, to talk about how Christians who are apparently, if you read the book, um, divisive with one another and maybe having a few feuds with one another can put those things to rest by remembering the story that unites us together. Sometimes there are divisions and sometimes there are uh, things that can rob us of our joy. But Paul wants them to make his joy complete, put those divisions away from one of themselves by remembering the story of Christ. So he begins, uh, if you look at chapter 2, the early verses of it, he says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, and if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Brothers, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out merely for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
So that's what he wants them to do, to take hope in the encouragement and the fellowship of the Spirit and the unity that we have with one another, and to do so by no longer being selfish or being ruled by your ambitions or looking out for your own interests. But he says, look to the interests of others. And I'll tell you who is the foundation of this idea that I'm telling you. Who lived it out perfectly? That's Jesus. The one who was God, who is God, who's equal with God in every way, and yet he became for a little while lower than the angels. And yet he emptied himself, is the way that uh, Paul's going to describe it, to become like one of us. He emptied himself of, all, of that which he deserved rightfully because he loved us enough to take less. Adopt that mindset towards one another. Sometimes take less for the sake of unity. Sometimes take less in order to demonstrate your love for another person. Jesus did. To the point that God, worthy of all glory, honor, and worship, died a humiliating and agonizing death, even the death of the cross. But when God saw that, God did not abandon his soul to Hades. God did not leave him in death, but rather raised him up and gave him a highly exalted name, a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the story of incarnation, but it's also the story of exaltation. When we focus on Jesus, these go hand in hand, and they're essential to knowing his story, that he is God and yet became incarnate. He lowered himself down. Yet at the same time, because of his faithfulness, because of his endurance, he was then highly exalted to the right hand of God. I'm going to read through Philippians chapter 2, uh, the verses uh, 5 through 11, and we're going to see this story briefly compact in this memorable statement. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, and here it begins, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant or a slave and being made in the likeness of humans and being found in appearance as a man, as a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus loved others enough to take less, to empty himself, to become humble, to become obedient, to become a slave in order that he might love, free, and redeem those. And when God saw him do that, God XL elevated him. He exalted him to the right hand of God above all heaven and earth uh, so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as to who Jesus is. He is the Lord of all. This is a story that becomes the foundation of our beliefs and of our teachings. Uh, the Lord's Supper that we just took, this is the story that lies behind that. The unity that we have towards one another, our ethics and our actions as we treat one another, this is the story that motivates that. Remember, Paul is using this as a way to bring about unity in a church where there seems to be some conflicts of brewing. And he says, let me remind you of what your life is all about. It's not about you getting exactly what you want with this program, or you getting exactly what you want here from this person, or you getting exactly what you deserve or are owed. It's about self-giving love for the sake of the glory of God. And when God sees that, 
it becomes our story of trust and hope. Hope that God is watching. Hope that there is a future exaltation that awaits. Hope in our own resurrection. Hope in our own uh, exaltation to the heavenlies with God himself and with his son, Jesus. That's story of Jesus. How he took less, he gave himself for others, and then was exalted by God is the story that we're invited into as well. Sometimes it means taking less now, but you can have hope and you can have trust that God is watching and that God will glorify. So as we bring our lesson to a close, this year be intentional, specifically about the Lord's Supper. When we gather here together, number one, be present. We've spent a lot of time talking about the value and the importance of the Lord's Supper this morning and of reminding ourselves what it's all about and how that becomes a model of what our entire life is to be, the fellowship that we have through this meal. Be present for the meal. Prioritize it. Try to gather with one another. Try to be here as a family and enjoy the meal together. Number two, be thankful as you do so. Um, The Lord's Supper in some traditions is called the Eucharist, and I kind of like that, uh, because the word Eucharist is the Greek word that begins every Lord's Supper's account that you read about, Uh, and that's just the word that means giving thanks. Uh, and, And so Jesus begins the Lord's Supper by giving thanks, and as you consider, as you reflect, as you partake, as you pray over the Lord's Supper, make sure that thanksgiving is often repeated in your heart and in your lips. Uh, It is a meal of thanksgiving. Be mindful of what Jesus has done for you. Be mindful of the love that God has for you and be willing to share that with others. Be hopeful that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes and that we will have this meal again with him. There's also a future aspect to it. Be hopeful that just as Christ was exalted, we can be exalted to share in the meal with him again. Um, There's a lot of theology densely packed into a relatively uh, brief meal that we share, but it's central and essential to who we are, and ultimately it's why we're here. So be intentional about the Lord's Supper. Be present, be thankful, remember what it's all about, and be hopeful for the future. And... If there's anyone here who, uh, you know, the, the first like five times I spoke, I didn't offer an invitation. I'm out of the habit now. Uh, if there's anyone who's here who would like to become part of this wonderful story, who would like to receive the benefit and the blessing of the blood of Christ and of the body of Christ, to become part of his body, to have uh, a share in eternal life, we pray that you would let that be known. We would love to be able to help you. We can study with you further, or you can have your sins washed away in baptism this morning. Uh, if you have need prayers or uh, to, uh, to learn more about the gospel, please let that be known. You can talk with some of our elders in the back, or you can sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.